right away they go to well, what is the purpose of our department what is the purpose of our organization i said no 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 stop we need to get really clear what is the purpose of this team because it's different than what the purpose of the organization is it's different than what you're working with uh, a head of a department let's say the marketing team marketing serves a certain function but the leadership team plays a different function than the whole of the group um, once people start looking at purpose in that way it changes their way of thinking they're going actually are you know for example one of them one of the teams i was working with said we're actually here to empower the people within our team to make sure that we're achieving our department goals how do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left what's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion why do teams of exceptional talent fail how do you manage the pressure to perform these are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a level three IECL accredited executive coach, international speaker, and the author of Teams That Swear. Hmm, might not be what you're expecting. He received a marketing and finance degree from the University of Saskatchewan and has worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, including Bupa, Novartis Pharmaceuticals and Major League Baseball International. He has also collaborated with Cricket Australia, Australian Baseball League, Baseball Canada and various marketing and media agencies, which perhaps explains why his kids are named after baseball royalties. Jackie Robinson, Nolan Ryan, and Willie Mays. it would be good to delve into that a bit further. So grab your gloves and get ready to step up to the plate as we learn from one of the most sought-after executive coaches in the league. Let's hit some home runs with Adrian Balagian. Adrian, welcome to the show. Hey, Craig. How are you? Thanks, 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 thanks for having me. I'm really excited and really honored to to be speaking with you today and we've got some some common interests and, uh, and passion so i feel really lucky to be be part of the show today yeah, it's great i know you've just uh, returned from bali on holiday uh but you didn't grow up there or you didn't grow up in australia as well so for you what was life like uh, sort of growing up in canada and then i suppose moving to australia in your latter years yeah, growing up in, in Saskatoon is a little bit different than growing up in Melbourne. Um, as, as a child, if you're from Saskatoon, um, you're used to the, the the cold winters, but that, that meant that you grew up with a pair of ice skates on by the time you were five or six. So uh, growing up in Saskatoon, you'd play ice hockey in the winter and then come summer, it'd be baseball. Um, so that was that was really what, when I was a child, sport was really central for me. And uh, that that provided me opportunities, I guess, as I grew up, that, that, that took me to places across the world with the sport. Um, coming to Australia actually didn't have anything to do with sport. It was I finished university and it was uh, I was going, I'm not quite ready to work. And I wanted to, to do a little bit of traveling. And, you know, the beach, the east coast of Australia sounds pretty good for, for someone who's used to spending winters when it's minus 30, minus 40 degrees. Um, so jumped on the plane and, and spent a few months over here and uh, through a couple of connections, eventually met my wife, who's you know from country Victoria, originally grew up on a dairy farm and uh, she moved to Canada for a, a year and a half or a winter and a half is, is, is how probably the best way to describe it. And uh, we came back here in 05 and, and this has been home ever since. Mm, brilliant. I love that. 
So obviously, you know, you talked about sport being kind of major part of your childhood. Were was there any other kind of big dream around what you wanted to do in life when you were running around the playground and uh, and sports fields when you were young? If I think back to probably when I was, let's say, seven or eight years old, it was it was probably a typical Canadian. It, it was sport. It was ice hockey. Um, I grew up a Montreal Canadiens fan, and that's that was always the dream for me. And uh, over time, probably realized it wasn't the sport for me. I wasn't necessarily somebody who liked to go into the corners and, and do the rough stuff. And um, anybody who's watched ice hockey knows that that's that's a big part of the game. And it, eventually, for me. I had some really strong mentors in, in, in baseball, but it wasn't necessarily the playing. Um, I'd gone through an injury that, that really impacted my ability to throw, and I got into coaching sport uh, at a relatively young age, let's say 21, 22. And that to me is where I found, I, perhaps you want to call it my calling, but it was working with a group of people, leading them and, and, and having some fun, but also working as a group to achieve some goals and, and at that stage, you know, it's working with 13 and 14 year old kids and always had that passion. But I, I think that really, it was the right spot for me. And it just, as I grew older and got into, let's say the corporate space, um, leading groups or getting groups of people, whether that's, that's direct teams or in, in my corporate career, I worked with a lot of external partners as well. And it's going, how do we bring two different types of people with perhaps two different types of goals and, and how do we actually get them to work well together, have some fun and achieve some some things that we can look back on that we're pretty proud of. Love it. So when you're going through high school, were you someone that was a natural leader or natural follower? Um, I would suggest I probably wanted to be a little bit of a leader, but it was something that I had to work on. Um, I can remember different times where, and this was through primary school and this is through high school, where at times I questioned and I didn't feel necessarily that I belonged. You know, I, I, there's, there's a vivid memory of when I was a young child and it, it, I can remember two of my friends coming up to me and saying, Adrian, we're starting a club and you're not part of it. You know, I'm talking when we're eight or nine years old. And wow. at that stage of life, you know, that's pretty critical. Now, the reality is that that club was over by the time the next recess came and we're all friends again. Um, <laughs> but I, that is part, I can think back on, I guess, my life. And I think that is that that sense of belonging is really what drives a lot of what I do. I think when people feel like they belong, they've got a high level of confidence um, and they're, they're, they're in their best position to to be their best, which will ultimately help them succeed in, in whatever avenue that, that they want to succeed in. So I think going back to that question, follower or leader, um, wanted to be that leader, didn't necessarily feel that that's what I was, but there was this calling or this, this I felt that that's, that was for me. Yeah, it's beautiful that, that callings come, come through and you followed it and chased it, which I think is wonderful. Now, obviously, playing both ice hockey and baseball you learn a lot of skills for life that are, are really powerful and you can bring across to uh, to the corporate world uh you know i think ice hockey i think a lot about resilience <laughs> about getting knocked down and getting back up again and i suppose that that level of uncertainty when you're skating on thin ice so to speak uh but, but for you at that time, did you really understand or grasp the what it meant to be part of a team? I know you've already talked about sense of belonging, but did you really grasp it at that stage? Or was it not until later on when you went into more of the corporate world or coaching that you really started to reflect back and go, you know what, what we were learning there has grounded where I am now? Yeah, at the time, I think it was just just what we did. You know, you grew up and you played with your friends and um, you played you played the games you know, so for me, that was sport. For others, it might be something else. Um, probably didn't think about it as much. And part of me thinks about it because it was a game and I I loved doing it. It was just, it was, it was a place where I felt free, felt confident and, and, and liked being around the people and working as a group, but without thinking about it too much. Um, I think when I got into the corporate space, um, probably a little bit more towards the second decade of my career, 
realized, hey, this working as a team doesn't come as natural uh, for everybody. It's not as easy as, as, it, as it was. There's different, different contexts that people bring um, to working together. Um, and it's probably where I realized you have to be a little bit more deliberate with, with how, how you work together. Um, and that's, that's what I'm finding now as well in the workplace is just uh, our world has changed so much. Uh, things happen so much quicker. Uh, there's a lot more demands on leaders and that, that's not necessarily an excuse for, let's say, poor leadership, but it's the reality. And what that means is, uh, in the mind of a leader, there's a lot of competing priorities. And I think what I've what I've seen over the last few years is that leaders need to be really deliberate about the actions they take to make sure that their team are cohesive and working as a group. Yeah, it's a good point. You talk about sense of belonging there. Now, it, it's it's obviously an area that I, that I do a lot of work in as well. But it's it's a kind of a space that a lot of people have talked about in recent years. So it's more common language, I suppose in regards to when people are talking about culture, people are talking about teams inside the organization or whether it be sport or other areas where there's more than one person involved. But when it comes to sense of belonging, is there a simple, easy recipe or is it a lot more complex than just saying create a sense of belonging? Yeah, I think when, when, it, when it comes to, I think there's some natural ways to belong. You know, um, and I think this is, I look at me when I look at sport. It's something I enjoy doing. Um, when I'm when I'm coaching or when I'm playing, it feels like my place. I'm able to do what 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 feels good to me. I think in the workplace, um, you have to be. It, it doesn't come as natural um, because I think in the workplace we're not always at our best because there's different pressures and different stresses that happen at work that happen at home. And they impact each other. And when, when, when we're stressed and the pressure is high, um, we don't necessarily behave, let's say, in the best way. So I think that's why in the workplace, being deliberate about creating opportunities for your team to feel like they belong, whether that's sharing personal stories, um, checking in on people just to see how they're going. Um, I know you're big on energy. I'm big on energy. And, you know, there's research out there that shows that when people are at their ideal energy levels, their businesses will perform better. Right. So I think going back to the point about that sense of belonging, I think we have to be really deliberate about what we, what we, or how we create that within the workplace. And when we do, that's going to allow leaders to be at their best more often, which will then empower the rest of the teams to be at their best more often as well. Hmm. Yeah, good point. It, it's it's interesting right now because we think when we look at corporate right now, it is the most the most uncertain and disruptive right now. Not not the last three years, right now, and it's going to be for you know I feel for the next probably three to five years. It's going to stay disrupted. It's going to be uncertain. It's going to be changing. Um, so anytime you think you've got your culture right, anything, anytime you feel like your dynamics right, it's going to something else is going to come up because we're only so young into this flexible working environment and because we've all been exposed to different ways of working in a in a sense we haven't spent enough time in those different ways of working to really understand whether we like it or not whether we're actually productive or not or whether it's just that nice shiny thing and it's kind of exciting right now that takes a while to get through you know it's a good two three year period to really find out mm, is this what I like or not and you know you, you've got people that might have young families you got people that uh, you know love working on on their own when you got a lot of other people that love collaborating and so it, it's really disruptive in regards creating that sense of belonging you know you talk about being deliberate it's be now it has to be even more deliberate than it's ever been because you the way you build a team and the way you observe a team is changing every second of the day so to speak so for in regards to sense of belonging what sort of things do leaders now need to take into consideration as the environment continues to be unstable in a way in regards to how teams work in the corporate space like what what are, what are the things that leaders need to take into consideration that let's say I'm going to say 10 years ago, 
it may not have been as natural or as important, but it's definitely becoming more important is looking at, at the individuals and their team as humans, as people. And I think we've seen that particularly during COVID, there was a lot more. Uh, I remember talking to a couple of clients and they said, well, I'm actually just checking in on the people more. Like I actually asked them how they're going. Uh, and part of me is going, just doing that now but that's but, but that's the reality because before that wasn't necessarily important there was a work life and there was a home life and when you come to work the expectation is everything is left at home and you come in and you get, get the job done um, i think that the expectation is still to get the job done but that the home and work are so intertwined mm -hmm. compared to how it would have been five to ten years ago um, uh, leaders do need how the person is doing is important so whether that's just a quick check-in and saying, you know, how are you going or, you know, how are you feeling these days or what's happening there that we can help with, um, checking in with them, I think it's, it's just, it's something simple, but it's not necessarily natural for everybody to do. So I think that's that's one of the biggest things that leaders can do. And then, then also put back some of that responsibility back onto the individual because if things aren't going good, it's going, okay, so what's the plan? What can we do to help? What are you going to do differently? How can we make sure that you can get through that or that, whether it's a short period of time or a longer period of time, what can we do to support? Mm. But you'd know this from baseball and ice hockey as well. You could send the team away and go, okay, I want you now to work on all these skills. So here's what you need to work on. Here's what you need to work on. Oh, give me a call if you're struggling a little bit. Oh, maybe send me an email versus actually having everyone on the rink or on the field together at the same time, collaborating, practicing, learning off each other. It's a completely different ball game, so to speak. So how you're talking there around the sense of belonging from a leader, making sure they're checking in with their team, but how do we then create those environments of collaboration and also spontaneous conversations that can lead to really innovative and creative ideas? But I think to the first part of the question is really how do we create these these environments that we can collaborate effectively? To me, Craig, that's asking the question: How do we work well as a team? Hmm. Right? What are the what are the ingredients? What are the things that we have to be focused on? Or as before, we were talking about being deliberate, intentional. In my mind, there's two things that teams have to be really focused on, and this is the same in terms of collaborating. There's two major ingredients. Um, and the first thing is relationships, and the second one is clarity and alignment. So when I'm talking about relationships, what I'm talking about are mature relationships. And to me, mature relationships matter most. Mature relationships feel connection and safety, and they allow teams to capitalize on, on things like conflict and also to be able to foster feedback. And when you get mature relationships, success is typically fast-tracked. So to me, if it, there's this real emphasis on creating those mature relationships, that's talking about how do we create connection and trust? How do we create, you know, Amy Edmondson talks about psychological safety, but how do we create that and foster that within the group? How do we make feedback work for us? And how do we actually use conflict in a good way? And how do we manage conflict? The negative conflict, how do we get through that quicker and effectively? So that's, to me, one of the key ingredients is that those mature relationships the second component to creating those those environments of collaboration uh, to me is about clarity, right? Ambiguity creates chaos, right? But clarity creates cohesion amongst teams. And when you've got a high level of clarity, it ensures that everybody's on the same page, they're working towards the common objectives, and it really helps teams prioritize their efforts and to use the resources that they have at their hands effectively. So I, I think regardless of the work environment that we're in, if you can have mature relationships, if you can have a high level of clarity and alignment amongst the teams, your team can truly shine. Mm. Okay, that's good. Now, for you, you went into a corporate world. Um, obviously, you talked about coaching there before. Uh, you went, went into the corporate world. What, what for you led you into the work that you did in corporate um, and for you, what were some examples of where teams worked well and teams didn't? So what led me into the corporate? It's an interesting question because my son is 15 right now and he's in high school and thinking about, okay, what am I going to do next? And he's you know, doing work experience and 
I think back to when I was 15 or even in year 12, when you're 17 and 18, what do you want to do? And well, I think at that stage, if anybody knows what they want to do when they're 17 or 18, they're in a good place. Um, for me, it was, um, there are probably things I knew I didn't want to do. I wasn't very good at science, so I wasn't going to go into that space. Um, I enjoyed sport, but I couldn't really see, I definitely wasn't going to have a career in it from a playing perspective. I didn't have that. Well, I definitely wasn't good enough to do that. Um, and I, teaching was something I looked at, but I, th- I like the idea of holidays, but there's part of me going, oh, teachers don't make enough money. Now, again, this is how a 17 or 18 year old was thinking. Um, so business, I think, attracted me in, in that, in terms of what I was going to do, I wasn't sure. And that's, um, so I went into commerce and then it was just naturally when you go into studying finance and marketing and the job careers come up and it's what am I going to do next and um, it was applying for the jobs and I think that to me is just a little bit of that's what was expected and I think towards the end of my corporate career um, I realized that you can do what's expected or you can do what you think is right and I can remember with as my kids were getting older I would often ask them two questions who do you believe in and what do you follow so who do you believe in? I would always tell the kids, you know, the answer to that is yourself. And what do you follow? You follow your dreams. And probably when I was getting to be about close to my 40s, I would ask the kids that and I'd feel a little bit of guilt because I was looking at myself in the mirror, Craig, going, well, I'm not actually following my dreams. I knew that um, I wanted to get into the space that I'm doing now. I knew that I, I was good at it, but I wasn't backing myself. And... It just came to a point where it's like, if I don't do this now, I won't do it. And I felt I want to be able to be a role model for my kids to go. It's not just talk. It's not it's just these inspiring words that that dad's, that dad's sharing with you or trying to install with you that it's actually, I wanted to, to back it up with some action. Now, the reality is, I don't know if the kids really would know the difference or not of dad getting up and going to work, you know, and jumping on the train and going to work or, or and going to work for somebody else um, doing you know, working in marketing or joint venture management or sales management versus now me getting up and going to visit clients. Um, so I think as much as I was trying to inspire them, it was probably them that helped push me and inspire me to, to go after, you know, to follow what I thought I should be doing. Isn't it amazing how much our children teach us? Uh, I only, I, I've started late. I have a 16 week uh, aged girl um, today, she, she's 16 today, uh, weeks. And it's amazing how much they teach you around yourself, isn't it? So it's beautiful that, you know, obviously you were sharing something, but you were able to realize, hey, you know what, this, I'm not leading the purpose or I'm not leading the life I really want to. I'm not um, following kind of the, I suppose, values or the DNA that I'm sharing with my children. So I think that's beautiful that you took you had the courage to then step out and and go into the work that you're doing now, which I find fantastic. Uh, for you, along the way, you leaders, you know, were there some kind of instances in your work where you went, okay, there's someone who I really like as a leader, or, or here's some behaviors that um, are, are creating a space where the team's not working so well together. And what are those kind of attributes that you were noticing? Well, when I think back to some of the teams that I was part of, when I talk about the ones that worked well or leaders that, that stood out to me, um, there's one gentleman by the name of Arthur Cassis. And there's one action that he took that stands out to me. And it was that made me think, I want to work for this gentleman. And it, it had nothing to do with the work we did, but every time we would go for lunch, we we would order meals like you would eat as a family, right? You would order three or four different things. You'd put them in the middle of the table and you would share share the meal, just like at home. You know, you've you got the food in the middle and you take some off. Everybody takes some from those shared plates. And um, Arthur did that every time that we went for lunch, whether that was him and me or with other people. And it was that sense again it would come back to that sense of belonging it was like we were family it was just one small thing but that stands out to me in terms of really resonated with me and i felt that he he looked at me as part 
not just as somebody who's working for him, but part of his family. Um, so that, that to me, there was a strong level of connection. There was a strong level of trust. Um, and that also then reflected in how else he spoke, as he often asked, he, he trusted in what I did, would ask what I thought should be done, um, and would often back me in terms of my recommendations. So to me, that was a great example of a leader doing things, I'd say outside of the office, but inside the office that, that really created, that, I suppose, that loyalty and, and that motivation from my end. Um, if I think about uh, behaviors from a leader on, on teams that weren't so good, um, there's one particular team, um, and this is where I think there's a little bit of art and science in leading teams, Craig. Um, I'm going to go aside a little bit here, but there's a gentleman by the name of Ben Darwin who used to play with the Wallabies. Um, and he's created a business called Gainline Analytics. And what Gainline Analytics do is they, they, they've created algorithms to determine the cohesion of a team, whether that's a sport team or a corporate team. Um, and typically a lot of the work that they do around cohesion is based on time that people have spent together and previous um, experience that they've got. Well, on the team, one of the teams that I, I would say this team that I was in, it was, it was a sinking team. It was a battle. We we're just trying to survive and keep our heads up. Um, but the science behind it would suggest that that's not a surprise because we had a leader that was new in the role. Uh, there was four people on the team and three of those people had never worked before and they had a total of six months of experience doing those roles. Wow. So right away, if you look at the science of it, Ben would say, you've got a low level of cohesion. So there's going to be, there's going to be some issues within that team. Um, and so that's the science. Now, the art of it, what I found with that team is there was low levels of trust. There was really, there wasn't a common goal that we were working towards. We were all very siloed going, I just need to hit my targets, which meant uh, there wasn't a lot of collaboration, sharing of good ideas. Um, I struggled in that because it was a new role for me. I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. Um, and I looked at my peers and I could see some of them really, they were kicking goals on their own. And I was like, why am I not kicking goals? But there was never, I didn't have the courage to say, I'm struggling here. What are you doing? And then often I would hear from a couple of colleagues afterwards what they did. And I'm going, why didn't you tell me that ahead of time? That would have, you know, that would have helped me, which ultimately helped that team. So I think this, 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 I guess some of the behaviors that I would see within teams, whether that's from a leader perspective or from a group perspective, is just when you're only out looking out for yourself. And I think that is the challenge that we face right now. And this is the challenge for leaders is how do we get people to actually collaborate and come together and work as a collective unit? Because society right now is really about the individual. Um, I just came back from Bali, right? And on the airplane, they actually had little um, stands that you could put your phone on so you could watch whatever you wanted to on your phone. 10 years ago, I remember, um, or 15 years ago when I came to Australia, I don't know if you remember this, Craig, on the airplanes, they had one big screen mm. in the, on the international flights that you would just have to, you could only watch that one movie, right? And then eventually it moved towards, oh, you can watch that movie or listen to six different radio stations. And then it moved to now you've got the entertainment packs on the back of the seat. So now it's like you can bring your phone so you can definitely do whatever you want on it. And I think what that's created for society is going, I just, I want what I want. And that's what I'm going to work towards. Um, in the workplace, that doesn't necessarily work because you need, you're relying on people. You're dependent on other people to achieve a goal. But if all we're focusing on is what we want, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a lot harder. Mm. You talked earlier around the importance of clarity in relationships, um, you know, as kind of foundations of high-performing teams. What do you mean by clarity, uh, first of all? So let's dive into that. So what do you mean by clarity? What, what sort of things do we need to be clear on to enable a team to become high-performing? Yeah. So when it comes to what do teams need to be, clear on and clear and aligned. In my mind, there's there's four that stand out, but I think over the last couple of years, there's another one that's popped in. And I suspect if any of your listeners, um, if we ask them that same question, they would add to that list. But here, here are the top four, I think. is One, what is the purpose of that team? Now, when I'm working with leadership teams, 
right away they go to well, what is the purpose of our department? What is the purpose of our organization? I said, no, 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 stop. We need to get really clear. What is the purpose of this team? Because it's different than what the purpose of the organization is. It's different than what if you're working with uh, a head of a department, let's say the marketing team. Marketing serves a certain function, but the leadership team plays a different function than the whole of the group. Um, once people start looking at purpose in that way, it changes their way of thinking. They're going, actually, are, you know, for example, one of them, one of the teams I was working with said, we're actually here to empower the people within our team to make sure that we're achieving our department goals. So when they think of themselves as we're here to empower the people rather than them themselves achieving it, it changes the dynamic of how they go about their work as a group. So that's the first thing is around purpose is getting really clear. What is the purpose of that team? The second one is around objectives. Um, it's amazing when I'm working with teams, I ask them, how many of you know what each other's objectives are? Your KPIs, your scorecards. 95% of the time, people do not share what their actual KPIs are working towards. It's something they hold close to their heart. Mm. Um, but if people are, are, are clear and aligned on what everybody's working towards, they actually find that some of those goals overlap. And that also gives an understanding of why people are asking for certain things and, and why they're pushing for certain priorities over others. But it gives them the chance to have that debate. So that, that's, that's the second one. The other one is around roles and responsibilities. And I'm seeing this come up more and more over the last two years than I've ever seen it before. And I, that um, roles are changing very quickly. Priorities are changing very quickly. And therefore, this idea of having a job description, and it goes, this is your job. Well, your jobs change very quickly right now. Um, you think the role of social media, you think of AI. There's going to be people within organizations who work specifically with AI. Two years ago, those roles didn't exist. But most likely, people are going to evolve into that. Um, so people really need to be clear and aligned in terms of who's responsible for what and what is it exactly that they're going to be doing. And, it, and that has to be something that's reviewed regularly within a team. Um, so that's 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 the third thing. So we've talked about purpose, we talked about objectives, we talked about roles and responsibilities. Uh, behaviors is the fourth one. And when I'm talking about behaviors being clear and aligned in one of the behaviors, what are the behaviors going to allow that specific team to succeed? And typically what you find is it's around how is that group going to work together? Um, an example of of this is when there was a I was working with a client, they had a they had a new, relatively new team People were hand plucked to work in this team. It was a big project. Um, the people hadn't worked together. So again, cohesion uh, from a science perspective would have been low. Um, the leader had issues with the team that she, she had one person coming into the year saying, Hey, Craig over there is taking way too long to make decisions. This is doing my head and we need to move quickly. And then uh, in the other year, she has to say Adrian coming in and saying, uh, or Craig's coming in there and talking about Adrian saying, Hey, Adrian is moving way too quickly, not considering the risk. You know, so and these these behaviors of coming to let's say mom or dad were continuing. It was and it just stalled momentum, and it also put a lot of pressure on the leader who's just had enough. So, in working with a team, one of the, th the behaviors that they said for the next six months for us to progress as a group is we need to say it sooner. That was the promise they made to each other. That if we've got an issue mm. amongst each other, right. we're going to make this commitment to say it sooner. And the whole team was aligned. They understood. They agreed to that. So then if an issue came up, someone would just refer to those three words. Hey, I need to say something sooner. Or at a team meeting, they implemented it. Who needs to see, say something sooner? So because the team was very clear and aligned that that was a behavior to success, it created this bridge of safety for them to bring that up on a regular basis, which ultimately contributed to the success of the group. I like this. I think I think it's really important. It's super clear. So you know the clarity of purpose, objectives, roles and responsibilities, and behaviours. Uh, I think is really really valuable, and it it starts to bring together you know what I'd term the DNA of that team in a way. Um, so you haven't even talked about values, which I I think is great because I'm not a huge fan of values in the way they are normally articulated. But I think what works better is the behaviors that everyone agrees to around how we how we work together is far more effective than just a few words on the wall when 
when we hear the word values subconsciously, we refer back to I value this, I value that, which um, is very hard to then come into an organization that says we value this, we value that. Well, it's like, well, I already value this. <laughs> so there's a subconscious play going on. So I like the way of you know looking at behaviors. I think it's so much easier. In regards to relationships, we've already talked a lot around the sense of belonging. And obviously, when it comes to sense of belonging, what do people need to, what is going on, I suppose, if we go a little bit deeper into this, what is going on for someone to feel like they belong? That's a good question, Craig. What what do they need to feel like they belong? I think one of the first things that they need is this, this sense of connection to the people. If you think back to when, if you were in a place, whether you were in a team, in a corporate, or, or in the community where you, you felt like you belonged, I suspect there'll be people that you can think to that you, you could connect with. They've gone through something you've gone through. They've experienced something you've gone through that you can relate to. They have something common that you like that you can relate to. Um, so I think in terms of belonging, having that sense of connection to the group. And the reality is, you, and, and there's some people that we were naturally connected with. We just, we just hit it off. We all know those people. And there's probably some people where it's on the flip side, where it's just a grind and they're really great, great on you. Um, but it, what I find is that people can be really intentional about creating those connections and looking for them and really trying to understand the, the individual as a human versus just that's your job or that's the, the co- my coworker. Um, what we find is there's a number of fundamental human um, experiences that we've all gone through, good or bad, that can bring us together and create that sense of connection. And, and um, Joe Madden, who uh, was the manager of the Chicago Cubs, uh, when they won their, the World Series, the first one in 108 years, uh, he often talks about connection and, and he emphasized that and he goes, I cannot have any trust with the people unless I've got a connection. So I will always start with looking for a connection. So he, he shares the experience of uh, he loves his red wines. Um, so when he gets new players, he'll try and connect with them through red, through talking about red wines or sharing their favorite red wines. And, you know, often he'll get young players who are 21 and they've come from the Dominican Republic or different parts of the world where maybe they don't have that. They, they haven't drank a lot of red wine. So then he takes that opportunity to teach them about it. But he finds that point of connection that he says, once I do that and I, I treat them as people versus just, just about work, he goes, then I find that the trust can come a lot easier. In- interesting. Something's just popping into my head. And it's something that I thrive on. It's something that I've naturally always done. And that is bring together a very diverse group of people. And so it's a it's an interesting balancing act because you're talking about connection there where it's about, you know, finding the commonality, finding what you're interested in, finding what the similarities are. But here we are talking about a world where we need more diversity uh, and we need to look at how we bring them together. So, and it's kind of funny because we, we, we joke, but it's true. Uh, in, our, in, in our team and also in our sister company, we attract uh, the misfits. Um, we're the happy place for the misfits in the world. And so when we think about connection to build that trust, there will be a commonality, but it's not always where you sometimes think it will be. Mm. And so whose role is that? Is that the role of the leader or is it just the role of the team to try and find that? Um, if there's Anything that I've learned when working with teams, and particularly with leadership teams, is this. Is it's that complacency is costly. If we wait for things to happen, they might happen, they might not. So when it comes to connection, where I've seen the best teams, the teams that have the most success, is when the leader is really deliberate on helping the team establish or uncover those, those senses of connection. Um, there's a, there's a great story. Uh, well, let's talk about an Australian sport team, the Richmond Tigers. Uh, when they won their first flag, there was a story that came out that they talked a lot about uh, what Damien Hardwick did with the team was he used this exercise called the Triple H. Uh, and what he would do is during the, after the team meetings, one player would come up 
uh, and share what they call the Triple H. So they would share uh, somebody who they find their hero, a highlight of their life. And the third H uh, is escaping right now, but it's a hardship. So hero, highlight, hardship. And the player would go up there and just speak for 10 minutes uh, about each of those three topics uh, and, and share some insight to them. And players on that team often refer back to that and talk about, I got to know that individual as a human being and realized we had similarities that I didn't think we had, or this person went through a dark time in their life and I can relate to that because I went through that as well. And they often cite that as one of the reasons that brought that team much closer, greater sense of connection. To me, that is a great example of being very deliberate about finding ways to create that connection. Um, I've got, uh, I was working with a group post-COVID and that's what they found. They had people in Australia, across the country, they had people in New Zealand and they weren't able to come together physically. Um, so we went through an exercise where they shared their map of life. And it was just at the, at the beginning of every meeting, they allocated eight minutes to this exercise where they would just answer the question, how have you become who you are today? And um, what they said is, A, we learned a lot about the people that we didn't know. Um, it was a great topic uh, to, to the meeting, and it really set the tone for the rest of the meeting for the group to work as a unit because they saw that individual as a human being versus just another colleague. So again, that's a great example. We can talk, you know, we're talking lots about sports today, but um, I think that's a great example of, of in the corporate space, being deliberate about it. It's not taking up a lot of time, you know, eight minutes in a meeting mm. to create that real personal, strong connection. And what it also did is it actually created a, a safe area for people, which is, I think, another key, uh, key ingredient to creating that sense of belonging and mature relationships is that, um, people, if the pers first person went and really dropped their guard, then that demonstrated to everybody else, hey, I can drop my guard a little bit as well and maybe talk about things that I normally wouldn't do. And it created this sense of safety for the group, which then they could use that down the track. Where if somebody made a mistake or they didn't know something, they felt much more comfortable in saying, um, I have no idea what you're talking about or my mind wandered off and I'd missed what you said there. Right, they felt more comfortable in saying that versus just kind of keeping their mouth shut, thinking, "Oh, geez, I wasn't listening. Ah, that's not so important if I miss it." And then down the track, they go, "I wish I would have asked what they were talking about." Yeah, very good. One of the things that we do very well in sport, in most cases, uh, and it, and also areas of the defense or military, especially Navy SEALs or Air Force. And then even into places like music and um, you know singing, etc., is the ability to have a tight feedback loop, and it's something mm. that has generally been missing from a lot of companies and the corporate world, where they've always focused on their six month and the you know yearly performance review. But very rarely do we ever see a feedback loop that's happening in the present, in the moment, which occurs. You know, like, you know, for us in sport is occurring all the time. How can we implement a better feedback loop or feedback system into the corporate world to assist with high performing teams where we've been so used to that long period before we get feedback, which may or may not be relevant at that time, depending on how the feedback's taken in. Um, but also, you know, that, that lost opportunity to help people grow along that journey. Yeah. Um, again, be deliberate about it. So set it as part of one of the routines that the team goes through. Um, I, I've heard this term. I don't know if who's created it, but I absolutely love it. It's called EBI. And it, it stands for even better if. Hmm. Comes from IBM, so, I think. I know IBM okay. uses www, which is what works well, and EBI even better if so. Maybe comes to it. I don't know. Okay, well let, let's give credit to IBM. We'll give credit where credit is due. <laughs> um, uh, so, so what what I love about the EBIs is when you think about feedback, right? We know that when feedback is given, uh, particularly if it's constructive or something that's not that's it's saying we we could have been better. Our brains will interpret that as a social threat. 
automatically our brain goes into fight, flight, or freeze. And we're, we're worried that we're going to be excluded. If we're excluded, then we're not going to eat. And if we're not going to eat, we're not going to survive. No, obviously we know that's not the case in our world right now. Um, so a lot of times with talk about how do we create feedback loops starts with a getting the team aligned and clear that that's actually something that we want to do regularly because we believe that's going to help us get better. So one, if people are expecting it, that's going to create uh, a little bit of a safer environment for, for the people. Um, so we, we've got agreement that that's going to be part of the do it. And, and then the language, I love the even better if, because it's not saying you're crap. You did that terrible, but it's saying, look, you've done this next time. You could be even better if fill in the blank. Um, and again, uh, another group that I was working with, this is part of their monthly leadership team meetings is they allocate 20 minutes of the half day meeting that they've got to taking, making sure, and they do it one-on-one. -on -one. It's not in front of a group setting, um, or sitting in a circle or, you know, everybody's telling that person what they're not good at or what they could be better at. But what it is, is giving that opportunity to give a one-on-one -on -one to share where they think that person could be even better. It's not saying you're crap, it's saying you're good, but you'd be even better if you did X, Y, or Z. Yeah, great. It, it's a really, really good approach. Uh, we use what we call opportunities, which is a very, a very similar approach. Um, obviously, the way you... You, what language you use is, is extremely important in here as well, which uh, we could talk about another day. Um, now, what we've kind of gone through there is is a, a really uh, sensible approach to high-performing teams. It makes sense. It's easy to follow, which is great. Uh, you've developed a book called Teams That Swear, and <laughs> obviously we mentioned that at the beginning. I'm sure it's a bit of an open loop. And... and can you explain a little bit about where the book title Teams That Swear came from and what does it mean? So it's actually interesting because you asked me early on, like, you know, what was my journey of moving from Canada to Australia and what was that like? Um, one of the things people always ask me, they usually ask me two things is why did I move to Australia and what's the difference between Canada and Australia? Um, one of the things that I was talking about in terms of differences between the two countries is the language. Now, I know that might sound a little bit odd because we all speak English um, and there's not a Canadian English and Australian English, but I think there is an Australian English because uh, there is terms that I've come across that I never heard of before. Fair dinkum, good on ya, how you going? Uh, these were terms that, you know, in Saskatoon, we, we, never, we never talked about. So I always had... My father-in-law would always give me a hard time. He'd, he'd say some of these, and I'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but the other thing that I that I found was that I found that Australians swore more. It was just part of the vernacular. There were certain certain words, certain four-letter words that were terms of endearment versus when I grew up, if somebody called me that, it wasn't a term of endearment. So you can work out which, which word that is, Craig. But, um, uh, and I remember I had a colleague of mine uh, who, yeah, Swore like a trooper. I always give them a hard time and say, "What, you know, why do you have to swear so much?" Or what? And they would say, "No, no, it's good for you." And we'd have these debates, and then I was a little bit stubborn, so I jumped online and I did a little bit of googling, and and lo and behold, uh, my colleague was right. In terms of, there's actually research out there that, that demonstrated benefits of swearing, and one of one of the studies was fascinating. Now, it's interesting that this study was done in Australia, New Zealand. Uh, as well, given it was talking about the benefits of swearing. So I thought, well, of course there are, because we swear a lot here in Australia. But one of the studies showed that it looked at high-performing teams, and one of the characteristics, one of the higher-performing teams is that they had higher levels of trust. And they talked to the team, and, and they watched the team. And one of the things they observed within that team that had a high level of trust was that they swore more amongst each other. And the takeaway from that was that people felt they could be themselves. They could be comfortable. They could drop their guards. Um, they could tell a joke that had to swear. They knew they wouldn't offend anybody. Um, but they just felt they could be more of their truer self. And if that meant a swear word came out, nobody would judge. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of the inspiration of, of where the title came from. And then I think what those studies showed is that Swearing, swear words do have a different power than a lot of other words. But in my mind, it's about how you swear and where you do it. Are you swearing by each other? Or are you swearing about each other? 
Are you swearing in front of each other? Or are you swearing behind each other's backs? And so that's 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 where the title came, and then the idea is that, and people really get it. You know, if you're swearing by each other, that means you're backing each other, you're supporting each other, you want to be with each other. If you're swearing about each other, it's on the flip side. So that's that's where the idea of, of the book the book came uh, and the title. And it, it's yeah, we have a little bit of fun with it when we're working with people as well. <laughs> Excellent. Now, and so obviously when people go through the book, um, it includes, you're really talking about those two fundamentals or foundations of high-performing teams, which were uh, clarity and relationships. But how do we know where our team kind of sits? Do we, how do we know whether it's a low-performing, it's just-performing, it's high-performing? I, I think we have a lot of confusion in, the, in from my sense in looking at... People were talking about, oh, we're high performing. I'm like, okay, determine what high performing means. Because high performance in my mind coming from a sport world means something quite different to what you're trying to share with me here. So how do we diagnose the team of a diagnose a what level of performance a team is? I, I think there's some well there are there's some very obvious uh, ways to determine that. Uh, you can look at your KPIs of the team. Right. That's, that's how an organization would suggest as a team high performing, they're meeting their targets, they're overachieving their, their targets. Um, I think there's more to it. I think when we're talking about a team that's high performing, there's delivering the, the results, but it's also how you go about it and the experience of the people within that team. Um, so how do we measure that? Again, we're being deliberate about it and we talk about it. Um, a simple question can be asked the team, hey, if we had to score the team between zero and 10 in terms of how mature our relationships are, and you got everybody to score it, that will stimulate a discussion around what's going well with the relationships teams, within the relationships of the team, and what could be better. Same thing with clarity. How aligned are we as a team? And you can just leave it at that. And if you begin zero to 10 and people score on it, and ask people to explain their score, you will get some gold from those discussions because it, it creates, it's the platform for people to identify what's going well and what's not. And it can be as simple as that. Um, in the book I've created, I've got a, a team dynamics assessment. And it's, it's almost as simple as that, but it also asks the people to rate the team on psychological safety, on connection and trust, on, on how well feedback used and how the team manages Conflict and the same with the four components of clarity, but just being intentional about having those conversations on a regular basis allows the team to identify what's going really well, i.e. success, and where the areas, I'll use your word, Craig, the areas of opportunity for the team to improve on so they can deliver even more success. Mm, fantastic. I, I like that. I think it's really, really good. Um, obviously, we hear... Uh, a lot of people will hear the the name Simon Sinek around the world, and uh, you know he's had a number of great books, and and also he's very very clever at being able to package a concept together in a way that people can understand and relate to quite quickly. You know, it starts with why was probably his first one that really uh, allowed him to stand out in the world. But you know, one of the more recent ones was around the infinite game and how we apply that into different areas of life. And I know you. we were talking beforehand and you talked about win the games that matter most. Tell me a little bit more around what that means in regards to the corporate world where there are no rules, there are no boundaries or consistency across different companies. We don't really know where I stand, but what does it mean by win the games that matter the most? If, if I relate it back to the concept of what Simon Sinek is talking about, and it, it, I think it's really interesting that it actually isn't Sinek's concept that he no. developed. He's built them off James Carson's work from the mid-80s around this. So um, I think it's fascinating someone like Simon uh, build off the work of somebody else and evolve that thinking. Um, James Carson talked about this idea of a finite game. There's a clear winner and loser. right? There's a set of rules. You know who you're playing against. Uh, there's a start and a finish. Whereas the concept of an infinite game is around, um, you actually, the game never ends. You know, so they use the examples of learning. You never stop learning, right? Uh, in business, is it ever over? 
do you ever just win the game or are you continuing to work on? Um, and the reason that really resonated for me, and I think we need to think more about this in the corporate space, but I'm going to flip back to sport for a second. You look at professional sport, um, AFL has, I don't know, 18, 19 teams, NRL, I'm not sure how many teams, but there's typically at the end of the year only one winner. Whoever wins the flag, they're deemed the winner and the rest are losers. Now, I look at the impact that a professional sports team can have beyond just on-the-field results. They make a massive impact within the community. They create role models for different people to look up. They create jobs for people. They generate revenue. They, 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 they provide so much more. But if that team doesn't win on the field, then that team is a loser. And I, I just that doesn't sit well with me. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I think in the corporate space, it's the same thing because we, we can probably come up with a number of companies who have technically won the finite game. They've hit their share price or their earnings target for the quarter. They've hit their quarterly targets or they're, they're growing at the rate that they wanted to and they've exceeded it. But how they've done it, I would suggest it's not done in a winning way. It's at the detriment of others. It might be to the detriment of the environment. It, it, it's, it's doing things that has negative impacts, but they go, no, no, I won because I hit this target or I achieved the goal that was set out to me. And well, in my mind, there's, it's important to have goals to work towards, they motivate us, they push us to achieve things that we haven't done it. But if we do it in the wrong way, to me, we haven't won. Mm. And when I'm working with leaders, often when I ask them, I go, is, what game are you trying to win? And we talk about the finite games, and there's still a place for finite games. I agree with that. But what gets them thinking differently is what is that finite or infinite game that you want to play for? What is it that you want to continue to do? What do you want to be known for? And typically, what they want to be known for, when you think back to the leaders that you work with, right? it's not necessarily the ones who hit their targets. It's the ones that have progressed or pushed you to be better. And that game never ends. Mm. And I think, I just think in the corporate space, I haven't quite nailed it, but I love the concept and I love what it does when you get people to think, well, what's the infinite game that you want to win? And what are the ones that are really important to you? And when they, they start to think about that, they start to think about their behaviors, they start to think about their attitudes, their mindset, which to me are the critical ingredients to achieving anything. Yeah, I think when you talk about finite games in corporate, it's with it's internally. That you can't actually oh, I don't I don't feel you can actually have a finite game against another company because what what game are you playing? Are you both on the same rules? Are you thinking the same way? Probably not. So it's very, I think we're playing the infinite game, but we have that finite game internally around what goals we set, etc. Uh, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? I'll tell you, over the last two weeks uh, in Bali, um, went on a, a snorkeling trip and the idea was to go and we're going to swim at the manta rays. Now, I don't even know what a manta ray is. Which, um, maybe I'm a dumb one. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. Um, but uh, the, so we went out there, we did that. I didn't really think much of it. We got out in the water and um, uh, saw this manta ray it's probably bigger than me and it's got this big round to me looked like a mouth um uh and my initial reaction was i'm not going anywhere near that and, and our the, the fisherman who brought us out there he goes you weak swimmer you weak swimmer you need to go there um anyway so uh i put my trust in him and I also again i had the kids so i thought well i'm gonna demonstrate you know you don't need to be feared and i, I suppose i trusted the fact that they promote that this is safe to do that so uh, that is the first time I've ever done that and gone towards something like that. And uh, the end outcome is I'm still here. And uh, I did something that I was very, very uncomfortable with. And uh, I kind of feel like, okay, you know what? The next time I do that, I'd go for it again. Yeah, good. I hear they give really big cuddles. Uh, <laughs> what is the one question that you would love to solve? I think for me, when I, it, it is still around how do we work better as, as, as a group? 
Because I don't think, you know what? That is an example of an infinite game. Because there are so many different uh, components that we need to consider, uh, different contexts, different individuals, different experiences uh, that have to come in. So I, I think that's something that I'm, I'm fascinated by. I like helping people get better. So I often talk about higher performance. In sport, I think there's high performance because it's clear there's a winner and loser, but in, in, in life and in, in corporate, it's more about getting better and building off and building off your strengths. Um, so to me, that, that question that I would keep asking is how do we get better as working as a group? Okay, love it. What is an inspiring great leader to you and who's a great example of this for you? So an inspiring leader to me is somebody who's um, got the opportunity, somebody who supports you and makes you feel confident, but but also knows when to push the boundaries and push you to do something that, that, that you're uncomfortable with. Um, I also think uh, some another factor of leadership is about being brave, um, to take a risk and... and um, and really set goals, not goals, but aspirations that push us beyond maybe what we think is capable. Because I think often when I when I think back in my time in corporate, Craig, and there was times where we'd set objectives and we would set them bottom up. Um, so I would set them, I'd pack, they would be aligned to what the company's goals are. Uh, and there's always this resistance to set really aspirational ones because I thought, oh, if I push too hard and I don't get it, then I fail. Right. Um, and I think uh, leaders who, who push you to think, don't worry about whether you're going to achieve it or not, but set it and see what happens from there. Uh, to me, that's something that really stands out. Um, when I think back to the leaders that I've had, I think a lot of the leaders I've had have had different characteristics that have really worked well for me. Um, I talked about Arthur before. Um, I had another one who uh, taught me a skill of mind mapping taught me a new skill. And it, what it did was it allowed me to think about things in a different way that I hadn't thought about before. Um, so to me, that was a great characteristic. Um, I think the one consistent theme across the great leaders I had is they installed confidence and trust. Right. They trusted me, but what that did was create confidence for me that they thought you'll get the job done. Love it. Very good. It's been a great conversation. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, there's a couple of ways that people can connect with me. If, if they visit adriantheCanadian.com, that's probably the easiest way. I used to have my adrianvillarsen.com. It's just too hard to spell, <laughs> uh, let alone pronounce. So uh, yeah, they can visit my website on adriantheCanadian.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. That's Adrian Velarjan. Um, so that's just Bail, B-A-I-L, large, L-A-R-G-E, and then on, O-N. Uh, probably the two places where that I'm on regularly you can connect with me there. Beautiful. We'll chuck those into the show notes. Everyone can find them easily and don't have to worry about spelling any of them. <laughs> and <laughs> But it's always memorable. You know, a name that's hard to pronounce or, or even spell is always memorable. So I like that. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Adrian. I thoroughly enjoyed sort of discussing, you know, growing up in Canada and then, you know, making that trek to Australia. Obviously, there's there's quite a big differences beyond the language. I'm sure one of them is uh, heat, <laughs> although you are in Melbourne, so it can get pretty cold down there too. Um, but yeah, really looking at w what makes a high-performing team, but not only the team, but also people and, and leaders as well. I loved how you added a lot of stories and situations that gave context to it and allowed us to visualize and obviously you know, build credibility about what you talk about. And, you know, if anyone out there who hasn't read the book yet, I I'd highly recommend, you know, checking out Teams That Swear. And I, I love the approach. It's very simple. You know, the importance of having clarity, uh, uh, sorry, having you know, both clarity and also really focused on relationships and the importance of those two to really help drive a high-performing team. 
Uh, so thank you for your time today, Adrian. It's been a real pleasure and look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. All right. Thanks, Craig. I really appreciate you having me on and um, want to wish you the best of luck in the future. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.